Good morning, Four Corners Church. Still, Four Corners Church. Uh, it's, it really is neat to see us all gathered together uh, here in a different place, and yet we're still the same church. As has been already said, uh, we are the church as the people. The people are the church, not the place. And so I think just the fact that we're in a different location, but gathered together, and, and in fact, as Brittany Danny pointed out to me earlier, sitting in our assigned seats, <laughs> it appears, uh, we very much a testimony to the nature of the church. The church is by nature mobile because it is the people, and people move around. And we have now moved around to this place, Madras Middle School. I recognize that for some of you, this might be fairly nostalgic, uh, given the fact that you were here in the eighth grade last. So maybe for some of you, this is where you went to middle school. So this is a little bit of a trip down memory lane. Uh, strange to be here. The last time you were here, things were quite different. But we're happy to, to be here in this place. We're thankful to the Lord that he's provided a place for us to worship him. Uh, really, that is uh, for, all of the, for all of the things that we might could, uh, could find fault with in any place, we're so grateful that God has given us the means to gather and to be protected from the elements and to be able to house our kids to, to learn about the Lord in classrooms and to be able to have a space where we can facilitate corporate worship. So we're grateful to God for that. We all recognize that transitions can be times of vulnerability for anybody or any group of people that transitions are by their very nature, vulnerable times, but especially in the life of a church. So let me just plead with all of us during this time, and I don't say this because I don't feel like this is happening, but because I think it just has to be said repeatedly, and the plea is this, for all of us just to continue to be patient with one another and to really focus on how we can serve one another. In a situation like this, there are always competing opinions uh, about how and where and what time and, and so forth. Many different opinions and many different uh, groups of people having to interact with one another and having to coordinate all of that. It's a lot of moving parts. And so let me just uh, make a plea that we all love one another. This is an opportunity for us to really show that the church, that church is being done when the Lord is exalted and God's people are loving one another. That, that's when church is happening. So let's do that together. And let me just also put out there a plea for volunteers. We, we are going to need more and more volunteers, especially as we have to, uh, in, the, in the weeks ahead, as we have to move our stuff out of here in preparation for uh, school starting in the fall, and then we'll have to, to take it out of a storage uh, pod there, uh, still here on, on site, but we'll have to take it out and set up and tear down uh, on Sunday. So this is a time, if, if you've been praying to the Lord and asking, how can I be more uh, active in serving his people? This is a great opportunity to get engaged in various ways. So just see, I, I would encourage you, if, if you would like to, to find a way to serve, to talk with your gospel community group leader or a deacon. Uh, that would be the starting point, really, for for getting a little more involved with this effort. One final thing to say is that everything is in the bulletin. Uh, if you haven't discovered this yet, it's all there for you. And uh, uh, we're not 
exactly sure what, what will come uh, in the future. I think tentatively uh, we won't continue to keep everything in the bulletin. There will be projection, uh, but uh, at least for this week, we're going to have everything there in the bulletin, or everything is there in the bulletin for you. So let me go ahead and get you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4. See, we're going a little quicker. And today we'll be, we'll be picking up at verse 17 and going through to the end of the chapter, to the end of chapter 4. For those of you who are visiting with us today and you have not been with Four Corners before, we are in a series on Genesis. And uh, in the building we were in before, these posters were, you couldn't miss them. They were all over the place in the worship area. Uh, but just, just so you know, we are going through the book of Genesis, yes, the entire thing, and we now find ourselves six months in, uh, into chapter four, and that's where we pick up today. And as we've been going through the opening chapters of Genesis up to this point, I think we are now left with one overarching impression that we should have, really, if we're, if we're taking the text piece by piece, so if you've just read up to this point where we're at and you don't know what follows, I think you would be left with, with this overarching impression. What now? And we would say that with any narrative, really, because narratives by their very nature build. And so we're always asking the question, what now? But especially at this point in the opening chapters of Genesis, we are meant to ask what now, where do we go from here? Adam and Eve have been expelled from the Garden of Eden. We get creation in chapter 1 and then a, a bit of a magnifying glass down on day 6 in chapter 2 where the creation of man and then woman is, is focused on there by the author. And then in chapter 3 we get the fall of the first couple of Adam and Eve into sin. They fall away from God into sin. And then at the end of chapter 3 of Genesis, Adam and Eve have been expelled from the Garden of Eden. Then we get into chapter 4, and they have two children that we read about, Cain and Abel. Not a lot of detail about Cain and Abel because the narrative wants to very quickly take you from the fact that Adam and Eve have been expelled from the garden, that they have fallen into sin, and wants to very quickly take all of us to this fact. Of these two children mentioned in Genesis 4, one is murdered and the other is his murderer. Cain kills Abel. In other words, one is dead and the other is cursed by God and sent away. So what now? What's going to happen now? All we have is this family and these two sons and nothing, it seems, is going to really happen through either of them. So what happens now? And this is where we pick up at chapter 4, verses 17 to 26. And the title for the sermon today is The Birth of Civilization. We're moving beyond the story of this one nuclear family. We've got Adam and Eve, and we have their two sons. We've got this, this picture of a nuclear family that goes in a catastrophic direction. And we're moving beyond that story, the story of a nuclear family. We're moving towards the development of human civilization 
and society. That's what's happening as we come to verse 17 in chapter 4. So if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 to 26. And hopefully as we're reading through this, you'll see why uh, really all of this needs to be held together. You can't take these and separate them out. These, all these verses really need to be held together as a unit. So verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help today that God will give us insight into his word and that he will help us to, to, to understand how this applies specifically to our own individual circumstances. The, the only one who can, who can truly and incisively uh, apply the word of God to each of our hearts is the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to ask that God the Holy Spirit would do that in each of our hearts, not just some of us, but in each of us. Let's pray. Our Father God, as we see the early chapters of the human story, we see such, such sadness, such darkness, and it reminds us of the sadness and darkness that we see in this chapter of the human story. Father, we see the effects of the fall all around us just as we see the effects of the fall here in these early chapters of the Bible. Father, we, we grieve over sin. We mourn, as Jesus says, we mourn knowing that we will one day be comforted. And Father, we consider that sin is real, not just in the abstract, but it is real in each of us, that daily we must put it to death. Daily we must mortify our 
carnal self. God, that we would not take a single day of vacation from this endeavor. Help us, Father, even now as we hear your word to put self to death, to mortify mortify our flesh. Father, we also in these early chapters see such hope. Father, what glory we see here, even here as we consider that arrow that points to our Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, we just gather here this morning to call upon the name of the Lord. We recognize that we came into your kingdom by calling on the name of the Lord. As Romans 10, 13 says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And, Father, we recognize that we called upon you into a life of calling upon you continually. And so, Father, we are doing that this morning by your grace, and we pray that you would bless it. We recognize that it is frail, that it is weak, that it is filled with our own idolatries and distractions and self-glorying. But, Father, we know that you receive the worship of your people nonetheless. And so, God, we bring our worship to you. Would you receive it this morning? The worship of preaching and the worship of listening to preaching. Father, would these things be pleasing to you and would they be fruitful in the lives of your people here gathered. We're grateful for this time we have. We pray that we, would not, uh, that we would not let it slip away in vain, but God, that it would be, uh, that it would, we would be engaged, that our minds and our hearts would be engaged. God, would you do this work in us? Would you defeat sin in us? Would you prick our hearts? Would you show us our sin, hidden sin? And would you bring the healing balm of Christ to our sin, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this birth of civilization that we read about here comes with three major things. And I don't have, we don't have the slides up today, but I do have the outline for you in the bulletin. So if you'll go there, you'll see uh, the outline for the sermon today. But it comes with, as we see the birth of civilization in these verses, chapter 4, verses 17 to 26, we see this with three things, the birth of civilization with these three things. First, the extension of a common grace. Secondly, the expansion of a godless humanity. And finally, the expectation of a holy Line. I think we are meant to understand these three things coming out of these verses as we consider the first expansion, really, of human society. So let's look at the first of these, the extension of a common grace. The last two sermons on Genesis have been focused on this infamous figure named Cain. And as I've noted a number of times, Cain really should be understood as the quintessential sinner. He is the the prototypical rejecter of God. If you will, Cain is like every unbeliever. He's like every person since him who does not bow to God as king, who does not trust in God as sustaining father. He is like all unbelievers, or maybe I should say it this way, all unbelievers are like Cain. He is the godless man. 
And we've seen various facets of Cain's wickedness. Really, it's like, as I said before, it's really like pancakes as we look at Cain's sin. I mean, you don't just get a a single act. You don't just get a single disposition or attitude. You really get this layering up of of Cain's wickedness, his his evilness in chapter 4. So just to kind of recap, let's go through some of that. He makes a faithless and unworthy offering to God. He, he does not trust in the God of promise. And we see from, from Abel's sacrifice of the very best, or his offering of the very best, that Cain does not bring to God his best. It's as though Cain just sort of brings to God whatever, his leftovers. Much application there, I think, for us and how we think about giving and how we think about service and how we think about what God has given to us. But he makes a faithless and unworthy offering to God. This is really the first domino of all the the ways that the, the heart of Cain is going to be cracked open. Cain looks quite polished at the beginning of chapter four, but but then with this first instance, this first event, this rejection of Cain's offering, it's like it's like Cain's characters cracked open like an egg, and you begin to see all of the corruption of this man. So when God rejects his offering, but accepts his brother's offering, Cain rages against God and his brother. He's envious of his brother. One of the things we talked about is that he does not delight in the worship of God. He does not delight in the fact that Abel loves God. He does not repent of his own lack of love for God and trust in God and delight in Abel's and follow in Abel's example. He envies his brother and rages in his heart against him. But then God, in his mercy, warns Cain of his anger, calls him to repentance, calls him to do what is right. And Cain dismisses God's word and immediately lures his brother into a field and brutally murders him. It's amazing when you read it that God gives this word of of grace, really, this word of calling to Cain. And it's not as though Cain goes somewhere and sits on a rock and deliberates what he's going to do. He he doesn't walk away from that and say, well, you know, God's telling me that I don't need to let sin take hold of me. And God is telling me that I need to just do what is right. But I'm so angry, I think I'm going to go kill my brother. That's not the impression you get at all. Instead, Cain has no appetite for the word of God. Do you hear that? He has no appetite. For the word of God. God speaks to him. Cain immediately rejects God's word and he goes out and brutally murders his brother Abel. Well, then there's another interaction with God. When God calls for a confession from Cain, what does Cain do? He denies that he sinned. When God puts a curse, On him, Cain complains to God. He says, this is so unfair, God. You are unjust, God. You are mean, God. He complains. And when God makes provision for him, Cain walks away with no desire to repent or to know God. It's incredible. All of the corruption in this man's heart. So what happens next with Cain? That's kind of the question that maybe is lingering in our minds as we, get to that, as we get to that verse. I mean, Cain has been sent away from the presence of the Lord. He's been sent away from his family. He will be a, a wanderer on the earth. The, the, the land will not cooperate with Cain. We know that there would be difficulty 
after Adam, that there would always be difficulty, that by the sweat of your brow, God says to Adam, you will eat bread. So we know that it would be difficult to farm and to work, but for Cain, there will be failure in farming. So what happens now? What happens next with Cain? And that brings us to verses 17 to 22. Go ahead and look at that again, if you will. Verses 17 to 22. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. This is surprising as you read through this. This is not the kind of narrative that you expect. Here we see the grace that was extended to Cain after he left the presence of the Lord. And isn't that an amazing feature of these opening chapters of Genesis? Constantly, we've been confronted again and again and again with the fact that God is a gracious God. We saw it in the way that he came to Adam after he sinned. We saw it in the way that he dealt with Cain. And now we see this. That after Cain has done all of this, all of this sin that we just described being stacked up, all of this sin in mind and heart, in affections, this rebelliousness towards God, this total disrespect towards God and disregard for human life. And then we get a narrative like this. So this is grace. It's not saving grace. There's no indication, as I said last week, there's no indication in all of the Bible that Cain was saved, that Cain became regenerate, that Cain became a believer, that he will be in heaven. No indication in all of the Bible of anything like that for Cain. But this is not saving grace, it's common grace. God's good gifts to human beings in general. As I quoted last week, this is the grace that God extends to the good and evil alike. And Jesus says this exactly in Matthew 5.45. He says, For God makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, those who hate the God who made the son still get to lay out in the sun on the beach. Those who hate the God and curse the God who made water still drink cold cup of water after walking out in a hot, sunny day. They still have rain for their crops. The God is still good even to rebel sinners. He shines forth his love and his kindness even to those who hate him. This is common grace, not saving grace, but common grace. And this grace extended to Cain essentially takes two forms. And I want you to see that in our text here. It takes two forms. First, the gift of a family. 
Notice that. You could overlook this really easily if, if you weren't careful. God gives Cain a family. Now, everything we know from the Bible tells us that a family is a blessing from God. Now, not all people are called to marriage. Not all people can have children. But we know from all of Scripture that a wife is a blessing for a, a man. That a man, a husband, is a blessing for a woman. And we know that children are a blessing from the Lord. So we have this man Cain, this wicked, sinful man, this rebel against God's glory who goes away from the presence of the Lord, who lives a life apart from God, and God gives him a wife and children. And not just a child, but he gives him descendants. Now, who was Cain's wife? This is kind of a classic question. It's a bit of a distraction, really. Uh, I mean, we would, we would assume here that Cain's wife is one of the, the daughters mentioned, one of the daughters of Adam mentioned in chapter 5, verse 4. You can look there. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So what we have mentioned in these opening chapters of Genesis are Cain and Abel and Seth. We don't have all of the other children of Adam and Eve mentioned. You say, hold on a second. Did you just say that Cain would have married his sister? Yes. Uh, at, the, at the early times of, of human existence, at the very early uh, periods of, of human existence, we see this even with, with Abraham and Sarah, that early on, marrying your sister or your brother was not an issue, and there weren't the genetic problems early on in human history with that. We do find that in the law of Moses that that is forbidden, that incest is explicitly forbidden. But here we have Cain marrying his sister. He has a wife, he has a son, and he has descendants. So that's the first mark of God's common grace to Cain, is he gives him a family. And the second, I think, is more important in this section, and that is the gift of culture. Do you see that? God gives Cain culture. Verse 20, Jabal is the father of animal husbandry. Verse 21, Jubal is the father of those who produce music. This is amazing. I mean, this tells us the origin of music, the lyre or the harp, the pipe or the flute. And we could, we could enlarge that to say that this is the beginning of the arts, really. We have with Cain the beginning of, of caring for animals. The, with Cain's descendants, we have the, the culture of agriculture, really. We have the culture of caring for animals. And we have the arts, music, which tells us that, that God actually gave them enjoyment of pleasant things. What do the arts do for us? Why is it that we go and, and see a movie? Why is it that we listen to a song? Why is it that we meander through museums and just look at paintings and take great delight in these kinds of things? And those are just some forms of art. Why is it that we read literature and other things? Why do we do these things? Because they bring us enjoyment. They bring pleasure to human existence. And so here we have the descendants of Cain enjoying things. We have God giving them pleasure in the arts. We have culture. 
And then in verse 22, Tubal Cain and metalworking. Here we have the origin of this form of craftsmanship, bronze and iron. And we could extend this to say this is the beginning of industry and technology. We really don't know what was going on before the flood. We don't know what, what levels of technological advance was ex- that were experienced by these people. But what we see here is that God gives them various forms of culture. So here, among the descendants of wicked Cain, we have the origin of much of human society and culture. It's very interesting if you kind of follow the uh, evolutionary schema uh, of, of the origin of human beings. You have, uh, you have going, going back, starting at 100,000 as they construct time, 100,000 uh, B.C., you have the beginning of the Stone Age. And it's not until you get to 1200 B.C. that you have the beginning of the Iron Age. But here we have Tubal Cain, verse 22, both bronze and iron. Here, with, with this individual at this time in human history. So, what do we do with all of this? What effect should all of this have on our thinking? Well, I think two main things. As we look at this first point, two main things that this should, uh, two main ways that this should impact our thinking. First, God's goodness, his kindness becomes even bigger in our minds. Once again, we're just reminded of God's goodness here. He, he's doing this for the descendants of wicked Cain. John Calvin uh, says it this way. I think this is just so well said. If you haven't read uh, maybe some of the uh, commentaries of Calvin or just some of the works of Calvin. He, he's well known for just very clear, lucid writing, just, just making things as, as clear as possible and just with such theological depth. So if you haven't read John Calvin, I would recommend that you do that. But here's a quote from him on this point. So far as concerns the cultivation of the present life, human existence that is, The rays of divine light have always shone upon the unbelieving nations. And we also see today how the Spirit's distinguished gifts are distributed throughout the whole human race. You can go to places where they are just immersed in idolatry, immersed in witchcraft, immersed in... Uh, just demonic activity, and even there, there's not, a, there's not a corner of the earth where we don't see, as Calvin says here, the Spirit's distinguished gifts, or as he also says, the rays of divine light. And he goes on to say this, let us admire the riches of his favor that God has poured out on them in such a manner, and listen to this, that we value far more highly the grace of regeneration by which he specially sanctifies his elect unto himself. In other words, any time we see, catch this, any time we see the grace of God common, any time we see the grace of God generally poured out to human beings such that we as human beings, regardless of where we come from, regardless of our spiritual state, produce any kind of cultural good, we are meant in our minds to move from that grace common 
to the grace special, which makes our hearts new, which takes wicked, sinful, idolatrous hearts, shines the light of the knowledge of the glory of God on that heart and writes upon that heart the law of God. So praise God for His grace. Whether it is common or special, the whole earth declares the glory of God. Even if the lips of men fail to do so. So that's the first thing we need to see is just God's goodness, God's kindness. The second main effect that this should have on us as we consider this extension of a common grace to Cain and his descendants is that human culture, listen to this, with all of its allurements becomes smaller in our minds. Do you see that? It becomes smaller in our minds as we consider the origin of much of it. This is where it came from, this cesspool of godlessness. So in all the ways that we exalt the glory of man's achievements, in all the ways that we exalt the accomplishments of human beings, ultimately we see that this is what it goes back to. Kent Hughes puts it this way, Hear the story of Cainite civilization saves us from overvaluing culture. Some of us need to appreciate culture a little bit more. What I mean by that is some of us need to appreciate the good gifts of God wherever they may be found. That where we see God's good gifts, we rejoice, we delight, we praise Him. We see through the person, whether the person himself or herself is godly or not. We see the, the cultural expression and we see it as an act of God's common grace and we delight in it and we rejoice in it and we praise God for it. We thank Him that He's been so good to human beings to give us so many advances in human culture. So some of us need to appreciate that a little bit more. But some of us need to detach our hearts from these things a little bit more. In other words, some of us fail to see that these cultural expressions that we so cling to, whether economic or technological or artistic expressions of man, have become for us what they were for Cain and his descendants, idols, replacements of the one true God. And this extension of a common grace leads us to our second point, which you'll find there once again in the bulletin, and that is the expansion of a godless humanity. By the way, I'll just stop for a moment and say I know it's a little warm in here, uh, so it's, uh, we'll, we'll work through it. We'll work through it. So the expansion of a godless humanity. Look at verses 23 to 24. Verses 23 to 24. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Listen to this man. He's like a gorilla. This is, uh, as I think John MacArthur said, uh, that this is the first kind of uh, macho speech among human beings. I mean, this is, this is man in his, 
sinful macho-ness, pounding his chest, saying, look at what I've done. Look at how tough I am. No one's going to mess with me. I'm Lamech. If Cain is to be understood as the quintessential sinner, the prototypical rejecter of God, then Lamech should be understood as the quintessential Cainite. Do you get that? If Cain is the, the prototypical sinner, then, then Lamech uh, really fills out what Cain and his people are like. He shows us what is going on spiritually and morally in the line of Cain. We know what's going on technologically. Wow! We know what's going on artistically. But now we see what is going on morally and spiritually. This is darkness. Yes, there's much urban, cultural, and technological advance, but this is society apart from God. This is godless civilization. And you can go back in human history and you can look at, at, at the Babylonians. And Nebuchadnezzar, we get a picture of that in the Bible with Daniel. But we got other records of that uh, in the ancient world of the glory of Nebuchadnezzar, the glory of Babylon. All of this splendor and glory, all of the glory of Athens in 5th century B.C., all of the glory of Rome under the emperor Augustus, all of this glory yet no God, godlessness. Martin Luther explains that this story of Lamech was written in order to record the godlessness, malice, and tyranny of Cain's posterity. This is why this is here. Moses has put this here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we would consider what the line of Cain was producing so that we would consider where humanity is headed. This train is headed towards destruction. Just as we saw layer upon layer of sin with Cain, we also see a heaping up of wickedness in the life of Lamech. So let's take a look. Let's look at this man. Let's look at his, his character, his heart. Let's look at his behavior and see what is it that makes this man so wicked, so evil. Well, the first thing is that he takes two wives. Did you notice that? We get that prior to these verses, but we're told that Lamech takes two wives. Wives. What precedent did he have for doing that? None. This is the first act of polygamy or bigamy. This is the, the first act in human history, I think we're meant to see. The first act in human history of just, a, you're my wife and you're my wife. Just, just taking wives to himself. And that's what he does against God's intentions and without regard for how this might affect those two women. Think about that. This is not God's intention for marriage. That's clear in Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father. Amen. One. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wives. No. Wife. Hold fast to his wife and they shall become two. One flesh. That is God's intention for marriage. But we have here at the very beginning, man taking to wives. And unfortunately, we will see this even among God's people. Throughout the Bible, we will see this with Jacob as he takes Leah and Rachel. And then, of course, you have their servants. And we'll see this kind of thing with Abraham, with Sarah and 
Hagar. We'll see this with David. We'll see this with Solomon and all of his wives. We'll see this even among the people of God throughout biblical history. This is not God's intention. And it begins with this wicked descendant of Cain, Lamech. So we see that. He takes two wives. We see his forceful and arrogant speech to his wives. Now notice this. What does that suggest? We've got this man standing over these these two wives, kind of beating his chest and saying, I have killed a man. I've killed a young man. A young man there really should not be taken as just some some child walking around that that he's slaughtered. It really should be taken as a young, strong warrior man. And here he's taken out. A young man. There's some level of vulnerability, I think, suggested here. But, but really, I think more than that, he's boasting in the fact that he's taken out a man younger than him and, and presumably stronger than him. And who is he saying this to? These two wives. And I think this suggests a certain level of marital intimidation and domination Intimidation and domination characterizing this relationship with these two women. What does that remind you of? Genesis 3, 16. What was part of the the sentencing of Eve? Her desire would be contrary to her husband. And he shall rule over you. Here we have the worst expression of that. This man can essentially do whatever he pleases with these two women because he's done whatever he pleases with this young warrior man. Who knows what would have been in the minds of these two women, but I don't think you can read this without feeling a sense of fear, without feeling a sense of intimidation on their part. What else does he do? He commits vengeful murder for an injury. I mean, this is just a light little, little wound or injury. And what does he do? He takes the guy out. He kills him. And then he boasts in it. He shows no regard for human life. And even more importantly than that, he shows no regard for the image. The image of, of God in man. He shows no regard for God's glory. Shows no regard for God's image bearer. He takes vengeance into his own hands. We're told throughout the Bible that vengeance is the Lord's. But he says, no, vengeance is mine. And then he boasts about his ability to do it and the severity of it. This is an evil man. He's aware of God's dealings with Cain. Now, this is what makes it all the the worse. He's aware of what happened with Cain. But what is the principle that he extracts from that? It's incredible, really. He, instead of extracting from the interaction between God and Cain, instead of extracting from that the principle that, that God hates murder and that God put a mark on Cain so there wouldn't be revenge against Cain and retaliation, what does he do? He murders in retaliation. He totally dismisses everything about the Lord's Will. He shows no regard for God's attitude towards righteousness, towards human life. And then on top of all of that, what does he name his child? Tubal Cain, which serves to venerate Cain. So through and through, we are meant to see just as, as Cain, it just stacks up. I mean, there's no end to the wickedness of Cain. The same thing here we have in Lamech. 
just stacking up. So the picture that we get is that this society of Cain, which is representative of the mass of human society, is expanding numerically, technologically, and sinfully. This is not just the world of Cain before the flood. We need to see. This is human society apart from God. This is how Paul explains human society apart from God. See, when Paul wrote Romans, he would have been thinking about the history of the people that, that God's people had interacted with. I just mentioned some of them, but particularly in the first century, we're thinking of Rome. And the, all of the evil and wickedness of, of, of Roman society and all of the idolatry of Roman society. And this is what he writes in Romans 1, verses 29 to 32, as he's describing the evil of, of the godless Gentiles. He says, they were filled with all manner. Listen to this language. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, murderers, um, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Man, he's on a roll. Listen to all of that. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. We need to understand that's our world today. That's the world always until Christ comes back. That's always been our society. And regardless of how nicely dressed, or what kind of car, or what kind of house, or what kind of, of civilization, if you, if you studied at all Nazi Germany, you would see these are buttoned up people and they're savages. Not all of them, but those who committed the acts that we associate with Nazi, with the Third Reich. Evil. Look civilized, but it's this. And this is what we need to understand. This is our sinful world. Our children will inherit this world. Their children will inherit this world. What does this tell us? There should be an incredible contrast between us and unbelievers. Why do we want to look like unbelievers? Why do we want to be like unbelievers? Why do we want to be like people who can be described in these terms? This is deception from the evil one that we would so tailor our lives to look like the world and call it cool or whatever else. That is folly and great deception. Read Ephesians. The great contrast between darkness and light. St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, wrote The City of God, which is a great piece of historic Christian literature. And in that, he basically traces two cities, and he goes back to Cain and, and, and Seth, which we're going to talk about in a moment, and he says that this is, the, this is the earthly city. Cain's city is the earthly city. And what we need to understand, people of God, listen, what we need to understand is that we're not a part of that city. We belong, if Christ is in us, we belong to the city of God. We are not part of the city of this world. There should be dramatic difference in how we raise our children. Dramatic difference in how we treat our spouse. Dramatic difference in what we allow into our eyes and into our minds and how we spend our time. Dramatic difference 
between those who live in the city of the earth and those who live in the city of heaven, the city of God. This further lays out, I think, the biblical storyline of man's sinfulness and God's salvation. As we consider this expansion, we are meant to see that throughout the pages of the Bible, we're going to see the the Cain way of life repeated, 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 repeated. But let's go on to our final point this morning, and that is the expectation of a holy line. What a blessing that we get to read these verses after all of that. Look at verses 25 to 26. And Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Praise God! That, that he would be so gracious as to make children out of us. To make children out of people who sin as we sin. Who have sinned as we have sinned. That he would show anyone grace to put in our hearts the desire to call upon him in his nature. By his name. Up to this point, the description of human life outside of the garden has been anything but hopeful. As we've just seen, the one sign of a righteous line with Abel's acceptable offering was quickly snuffed out. We just get a little bit of, we see that. We see a little bit of a a holiness and righteousness among human beings placed there by God's grace. And then it's just, it's gone. The moment it appears, it's gone. And then we're just left with Cain and his godless descendants typified in Lamech. That's where we're at when we get to verse 25. Do you see that? Do you see what the, what the Holy Spirit is trying to get us to see and where he's taking us in these verses? But then we get verses 25 and 26, and it really is like hitting the reset button. Think about that. Just hitting the reset button. And when this button is hit, there is an explosion of hope. And that's what we're going to be left with today. I want you to see this in three ways before we close this morning. Three ways in which we see this hope in these last two verses. First, Eve says that in place of Abel, God has appointed a seed. Now, this is amazing because when Eve has Cain, there is hope. And she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And I think we're meant in that situation to think that in Eve's mind, she's thinking of God's promise indirectly to her as as God judged the serpent. Let's go back to this all-important verse in the Bible. Chapter 3, verse 15. I want you to see this. This is so important. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God speaking to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Between your seed and her seed is the the word seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, Eve and Adam are promised indirectly as they hear this. They are promised that God is going to send a descendant 
of Eve who will conquer Satan. And who in conquering Satan will undo the effects of Satan. In other words, bring humanity back to paradise. Bring humanity back to a a pre-fall state. And so when Eve has Cain, she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And I think there is here in this an implicit kind of hope that this might be the seed or at least leading to the seed. But she says that here explicitly. She believes that Abel, I mean that uh, Seth, either is the promised seed or that he will lead to the promised seed. This shows that Eve looks with hope to the seed who will crush Satan's head. So that's the first thing we need to see, the the reappearance of this word seed. By the way, I don't know if I said this explicitly in all of that, but this is the first time the word seed has has been used since Genesis 3.15. So whatever's going on in Eve's mind, this is what we're to take away from this. And the Hebrew reader who's reading through this is seed, 3.15, seed, which is telling us that here we have the beginning of something hopeful. Second, this seed begins to branch out. This is not snuffed out. See that. Abel's life was taken. He did not have a child. But what happens with Seth? Seth has a son, Enosh. So we are now ready to begin tracing a line to the deliverer. Isn't that exciting? When you get to the beginning of chapter 5, you're just marching along to Noah. And then you're marching along to Abraham. And then all throughout the pages of the Bible, you are marching along to the seed who is Christ. God is giving hope here. He's pointing forward towards Christ. And third, finally, these wonderful words, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. There was a revival in the line of Seth with Enosh, where people began to worship the God who had shown grace to Adam and Eve and the God of Abel. They turned to God and there became a kind of corporate expression of worship, a fresh corporate expression of worship of the one true God by name. They began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the expectation of all that the Bible will bring us. Even here, this is the expectation of the Savior whom we call Jesus Christ. The one in whom we've trusted. That's what Paul says in Romans 10. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Who's he talking about? Jesus. Yeshua. Savior. Kurios. Lord. He's talking about God incarnate. The Christ who has been exalted to God's right hand. We call upon the name of the Lord. And so here's what I want to leave you with this morning. Do you call upon the name of the Lord? And what I mean by that is, do you really know God? I don't mean just come to church, read your Bible, have some experience you had in the past that you prayed once or twice. Or maybe you prayed before you ate dinner last night. I mean, do you know God? Do you call upon the name of the Lord in faith? Do you trust him? Do you walk with him? Do you meditate on his word? Do you hope in the life to come? Or is your face in the dirt, living 
for the earthly city. Don't presume. Don't presume on God's grace. Turn to him in faith and trust him freshly. Today, all of us, turn to him and call upon the name of the Lord freshly this morning in response to this reminder that our people, God's people, go all the way back to the beginning and that we will be calling upon the name of the Lord in heaven with these people one day. Will that be you? Let's pray. Our Father, you are kind and merciful to give us this time. Father, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve to hear your word. We don't deserve to know any of these truths. So, Father, thank you. We praise you for it. And Lord, we just ask that we would be those who do truly call upon the name of the Lord, that we will be those who really trust you, Father. Would we all examine our hearts, God, and just be sure that we have experienced your grace? And Lord, to seek you and not to presume, not to be lazy Christians presuming on your grace in ways that are evil. Father, help us to never stop seeking you and never stop asking and knocking and crying out to you as that that tax collector did. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Father, help us, we pray. Thank you for this time. We offer it all up to you through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.